This is Union Days. Stories from a Union Scrapbook. When I was growing up, kids wanted to be... Astronauts. Footballers. Scientists. Shop owners. But I knew I wanted to be part of the Union world. Part of the struggle for better jobs, safer conditions, greater equality. So I've worked in and for unions all my working life. It's been a huge privilege and a great experience. Vets, cops, lawyers, medics, footballers' wives, they all get to tell their tales. Now it's the turn of a union rep to open the scrapbook of stories. The people, places, Scraps and scrapes, heroes and villains, tall tales and low blows. It's the stuff of life itself, and I can't wait to share these stories with you. Who knows? You might see yourself in some of them. In fact, you probably will, though we have changed some names and other details. Let's get started. I recall so vividly making a house visit to a union member who'd been suspended pending a disciplinary hearing for some five or six weeks. We sat at the round table in his kitchen, going through what had happened, what arguments we could use. His wife was there too, darting up now and again to check their two small children were okay. You could sense just how this was affecting them. You could see it too. He was up and down like a yo-yo, one moment reflective, the next almost frenetic. She seemed more controlled, or in control, but so taut, like it was taking every ounce of her being not to just snap. Our conversation finished, he showed me out. I'm so worried about her, he confided, before telling me of his flirtation with suicidal thoughts, which had scared him still more. My God, I thought on the train back to London, that could be me, same age, same family set up, There but for fate go I. The member won his case, moved jobs, last heard of, all was well. Representing someone through a misconduct or discipline case is perhaps the most important thing on an individual basis that a trade union rep will ever do. Here's someone who needs help, specialist help, and needs it fast. They will have been caught up in a situation or perhaps just plain caught that's landed them in trouble deep trouble. Feeling awkward or isolated at work in the aftermath perhaps of having been bullied or harassed, they will have had an uncomfortable or even downright intimidatory meeting with or letter from the boss or perhaps HR. They're going to feel that the world has turned on them, that they're going to lose their income. There is no one to offer them help. Layer this on top of whatever may be happening for this person outside of work. Money worries, poor housing, kids in trouble at school, stresses, strains, illnesses amongst those closest to them. And then layer on top of that how they are as a person. What is going on for them? Unresolved issues, hidden trigger points, a straw that has broken the camel's back. And they call the union. That's why they pay their subs each month, even though they've never used our services before. That's why suddenly... They realise that those people we use in our publicity to say, this could happen to you, you need us. They've swapped places with the models. This has happened. 
They do need us. That has to be your starting point. People caught up in disciplinary proceedings are mostly disorientated. They are angry, upset and fearful. The strange contradiction is that we are able to offer some help very simply, just by listening and by giving practical advice about the process and their rights, even before we get onto the details of the specific case. That's why I could never understand why some colleagues were so, so clinical, clinical to the point of dismissive, really, in their dealings with members in this position. I think it was a kind of tough love view of the world. Maybe it was a symptom of overwork, I don't know, but I wouldn't have liked to have been on the receiving end of that. I usually found that if you engaged with people in such difficulties who were reaching out, it made a material difference to how they were feeling. Someone's listening. Someone can tell me what will happen next. Someone will understand. Look, I don't want to sugarcoat this. There were people whose anger eclipsed anything else they had to say and who couldn't seem to get past that. There were people who were in denial up to and beyond the point at which they were sacked. There were people who, in my unqualified view, seemed to have issues that a GP, or more specifically a mental health specialist, should have dealt with. But they were very much a small minority. Most callers were in the wrong place at the wrong time, had had bad luck, were victims of their own poor judgment, had inadvertently set a line of dominoes falling that made something apparently insignificant much worse, had misunderstood or had been victimised by a colleague, and in those cases, usually a colleague in a more senior position. It's not just the relief. It's the vindication that is the sweetest of things to be able to help people achieve. There is a real impact in the workplace too. Picture this. Josie has been dismissed. The reaction from management to her alleged misconduct was a precautionary suspension from work. But the general view in the office is that the manager had it in for her. The general view also was that she wouldn't be back. If Stalin, as the boss in the back office may have been known, didn't like you, it became a race to jump before you got pushed. But Josie went to the union, and with our help, she kept her job. Now imagine what it means to have been pushed violently and permanently out, and then to return, like Lazarus. Her colleagues cheered and Stalin hid. Things like that changed the balance of power. Some cases can be as life-affirming as they are bizarre. Take the alleged theft of a dilapidated, rusting, old telephone kiosk. You remember, the red ones with small panes of thick glass set in a heavy metal frame, stinking of urine and plastered with cards for prostitutes. Well, in times gone by, when these kiosks, or PCOs as they were formerly known, were changed or removed, they went to general storage yards dotted around the country. The working parts were taken out and scrapped or repurposed. The ones in the best nick were sold off, and the ones that were battered, broken and otherwise degraded were left in the corner of the yard, glassless and with rusting frames, to largely just rot. The story I have in mind goes like this. Stan frequently visited the store's depot to make sure his van was fully equipped. In the large yard around the depot were some of these dilapidated, rusting phone kiosks, some with no glass left at all, just a frame. Now, our Stan is a keen viticulturalist. Yes, he's growing his own vines in his south-facing garden with his well-drained soil. And 
One of these old kiosks is just what he's been looking for. Open slats where the glass had once been for the vines to climb and one solid side to keep the prevailing wind at bay. And the kiosk had been there for like ages, ages, years and years. No one wanted it. No one cared about it. It wasn't worth anything. So in the yard one day and seeing the ragwort and some other weeds growing where his vines could sit, that gave him the push he'd been waiting for. Stan says to the charge hand, the senior guy on site, can I have that then? And points. Sure, says the charge hand. I mean, there's no call for that junk. Get it? No call! So that Saturday, Stan comes in with a flatbed trailer and he and his dad load up the rusting, unloved, worthless carcass of a phone kiosk. And on the following Monday, Stan gets suspended from work on a sackable serious misconduct charge of theft. On Tuesday... I get a call from our local rep. Stan is adamant that the charge hand said it was okay. The charge hand not only says he has no recollection of this, he denied even talking to our man. The discipline hearing is days away. Our rep reckons that he can get Stan off with a final warning if Stan drops his insistence on saying the charge hand gave him permission. I agree. No way Charlie Chargehand is going to cough for this given what's happening to Stan. I say to the rep, I'll drop him a line to confirm my view, and I do. A week later, and I'm speaking to our local rep again. He's in a state of some agitation. What's wrong, I ask? It seems Stan accepted the advice he's been offered. The local rep has constructed a great submission. Clean record up to now. Understandable confusion. Stan's willing to pay for the kiosk. No damage done to the company. Classic, he deserves another chance stuff. It's all going so well. Stan is playing his part, sticking to his brief. They get right to the end. The formal proceedings feel like they've been closed. And then the manager chairing the hearing says, almost as they're leaving the room, anything else you want to say? And Stan can't hold it in anymore. He said I could have it. He bursts out, Charlie said it was okay. It could have been worse. Stan could have been summarily dismissed, told to sling his hook, hand in his pass, leave the premises immediately. Instead, he gets fired but has to work six weeks' notice. So, on to the appeal. A more senior rep is drafted in. They have gravitas. They are gravitas. The mere presence of this senior rep says strongly that the appeal must be upheld. Part of the briefing for Stan is Gravitas pointing out what happened the last time Stan told the truth, according to Stan. But Gravitas is undone on this occasion. Now, Stan has never professed any strong moral or faith-based feelings to either of his representatives, but he is clearly driven or maybe fixated on the unsustainable certainty that Charlie told him it was okay to take the kiosk. The appeal is lost. In those days, there was, in exceptional circumstances, a second appeal. Stan didn't really meet the criteria, but I managed to get him one final hearing. The final hearing manager looked at me warily across the table. Or was it wearily? I took Stan through his story. I asked him how his imminent departure from the company was affecting him and his family. I asked him how he felt about his job, which he liked and wanted to keep. You see... I said to my managerial counterpart, it is so costly and counterproductive to Stan to have said what he did at the first hearing. Even so, he did it again at the appeal, knowing what the outcome would be. 
There is only one rational explanation, I urged. Stan's telling the truth. Glory be, the second appeal was upheld. The company accepted there'd been a misunderstanding. Stan paid 30 quid for the kiosk. And I believe Stan was indeed telling the truth. Other cases were harder to win. And this was often the case when technology played a key role. One member was on a dismissal charge for, allegedly, willfully failing to attend a job. The fact that his personal life was disintegrating before his eyes was insufficient mitigation. The employer left him suspended on full pay for weeks and weeks. I guess there's only one thing worse than knowing you're going to be sacked. And that's not knowing. Work was allocated on a device they called the brick. This was way before laptops and tablets. The investigating manager was sure he had our guy banged to rights. I couldn't see a way around this, to be honest. Tell me. Show me exactly what you did, I said to our member. We were in his workplace and he showed me where the brick was stored, hanging by its strap on a hook in his locker. Some big domestic shock has hit him on the day in question and he told me he just snatched a look, saw it was clear and rushed home. Aha, aha, there's the light bulb moment. The light bulb moment, literally. The reflection of fluorescent strip lighting on the screen of the brick where it hung made it impossible to read. The manager didn't want to believe it either, until we showed him. Trickier still was an allegation that a customer service centre member had disclosed an unlisted number to someone who wasn't authorised to have it. This was a routine hassle for our members working with the customer database. All kinds of people tried all kinds of scams to get hold of private numbers of the rich and the famous, royalty, ex-spouses, anyone in the news that week. The worst behaviour you heard about was always from the tabloids. And then came phone hacking, which rather proved the point. But estranged or allegedly dying parents, desperately needing to speak to the kids, were not uncommon, as well as professional blaggers, be they private investigators or tabloid journos. Anyway, our member had been talked into disclosing this information. The employer was adamant. The individual was in work, logged on, has accessed the data... Yes, yes, but. But, and the but here is to do with what data, exactly what data had been accessed. Because you can't disclose something you haven't got. And there was no doubt that some shady individual had got data they shouldn't have. But that didn't mean our member had disclosed it. My goodness, the hoops we jumped through on this case. Again, sitting down with the member and reviewing what exactly precisely they had done was invaluable. Turns out... Our member had version 8 of the relevant software on their terminal. And you could only access the allegedly disclosed data if version 9 or above was installed. But, 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 appealed the employer. How could the blogger have got this info if not from your member? Admittedly, the circumstantial evidence was strong, but we had hold the prosecution case below the waterline. Technology also played a role in one of the most bizarre cases that came my way. One of our reps, never backwards in coming forwards, had had a falling out with the site manager. It wasn't good. Our man lodged a bullying case and the manager had gone off sick with stress. Meanwhile, our man is rostered on permanent night shifts at one of the company's 24-hour centres. It may possibly have been the case that really there wasn't enough to do, but people needed to be on duty just in case. 
Anyone who has worked nights knows that time hangs heaviest of all in the small hours. Management was of the laissez-faire variety, and the staff, including our man, were all very competent. Don't ask me for the full backstory, but our man was also heavily into gaming and had a whole online fantasy world persona. To pass the heavy hanging time, he bought this persona into work, imported the fantasy land onto his desktop, and continued his online relationship with a kindred spirit in a country far, far away. This shared deep passion for the online world, where personas are adopted, challenges set, and battles fought, may sound crazy, but it developed into a serious interaction, almost addictive, like Cupid had fired an arrow across cyberspace and through the computer screen. Our man, who existed in this fantasy land as Athotha, was absolutely enraptured, fixated by soulmate Yusotho. To cut to the chase, it's so all-consuming that even the company get to notice. In a mad chess-like game, union and company match each other move for move. There's the bullying, the stress, non-existent management standards, an internet usage policy more honoured in the breach than by observance. Every time some new piece of information or revelation seems poised to condemn our man to dismissal, some new and material management flaw surfaced. We eventually muddled our way to a compromise. But looking back, the length of time it took, the convulsions along the road to a resolution seem unbelievable. Why did not the employer act decisively and dismiss our member? Or call our bluff in terms of the disruption to service our member's withdrawal of labour could cause? In a strange way, it reflected the mature, robust, but ultimately solution-oriented approach to industrial relations that existed at the time. It may not have been in any sort of management textbook, but patience and perseverance was undoubtedly better than a car crash, both in terms of IR and performance, that was the alternative. There wasn't always such a patient approach, though. Following a truly traumatising and mercifully rare fatal accident at work, one of our local reps, very closely connected with the accident and its aftermath, was suspended pending disciplinary action for allegedly passing confidential information to external enforcement authorities. The tragic background made relations very tense. We were into December. Quality of service stats were being pummeled by the weather. Christmas was coming. One thing we could agree on is that we needed to fast-track the process, but the paper trail was like a heavily knotted, twisted ball of wool. Unpicking it was frustrating, intensive, but ultimately successful in proving that the disclosure had indeed taken place on the instruction of one of the company's own managers. Consistent with a learning culture, we quickly agreed to amend the conduct code to take into account situations where employees were faced with a statutory duty to cooperate, irrespective of the employer's preferences. I guess the Whistleblowing Act takes care of any similar sorts of contradictions now, but so much better to have consciously and constructively negotiated arrangements than to rely on a default statutory position. <laughs> There's no doubt that disciplinary proceedings, up to and including hearings, can be incredibly stressful. After all, an employee's job is on the line. I've represented many people who failed to realise the potential consequences of being too relaxed or unprepared or cocky or arrogant or unapologetic and found themselves out of a job. We'll hear more about them and the strange role that sex seems to play in these hearings 
in the next episode of Union Gaze. This has been Union Days, scenes from a union scrapbook with me, Simon Sapper. Music is by Scott Holmes, production by Makes You Think. Subscribe, rate and review on the podcast platform of your choice. You can email the show at info at makesyouthink.com. Thanks for listening.